Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, John. Now things are right with the world. You start, I respond. Yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. That's that's just how it's supposed to be. I don't know. I don't know why I tried anything differently. I don't think if it's not broken. Yeah. Don't yeah. fix it. Yes. Uh, no, that's uh, good advice. Good. I'm doing well, and I I think it's great your opening with such sage advice. We have a an episode full of uh, sage thoughts and deep thoughts and clever stuff. None of which is from us. No. But we got to listen to it. We are so lucky. This is uh, episode 215, uh, season two, episode 15. We're going to listen to chapter 15 of The Bullet Catch. But who cares, really? Because we have got part one of a two-part episode. That's why we're calling it part one. We decided to divide it up that way because it was too confusing if we if we didn't use uh, you know that kind of neural system. Part one of our interview with Nicholas Meyer. Wow. Now, uh, he... Could have been a five-part interview, really. It, it really could have been. Uh, he's a director of Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. Perhaps you've heard of it. He's yeah. the writer. Uh, he's the writer-director of Time After Time, one of uh, uh, John's and my favorite movies. It's a, if you haven't seen Time After Time, stop the podcast and watch it, and then yeah. come back. You know, he's also the director of the devastating miniseries, The Day After, which I saw once and do not need to see again. I have not seen it. I guess. Oh, it was a big deal miniseries back in the day. And it anyway, it was it's a difficult watch. And he's also uh, the writer of a much more upbeat miniseries, at least comparatively. The two part Houdini miniseries starring Adrian Brody. What a great miniseries that is. Nick's father uh, wrote a really good psychological study of Houdini, a book called Houdini, A Mind in Chains, which was I guess the starting point for Nick's script and for the miniseries, we find out in this interview that he said, I'm interested if we can kind of adapt my dad's book, then I'd work on it. So uh, to kick off the interview, we talked about that very intriguing book, Houdini, A Mind in Chains. Do you remember what it was that caused your dad to write that book? I know something about it. Uh, I should throw in a couple of um, helpful, I don't know if they're helpful, um, additions. He was interested, his, the subjects that kind of absorbed his attention, uh, not all of them, but, but, but a preponderant degree, were the sons of passive or absent fathers. Th- this was a, a topic which probably originated from his experiences with his own father, my, my grandfather, who was a very interesting man and a kind of a world beater, but who spent so much of his time doing what they said in The Wizard of Oz, being a Philip, 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 good deed doer, um, <laughs> that, he, that he, he didn't have enough time for fathering. He, he was not a bad man at all, quite a conscientious one, but uh, the parenting was, was left to his wife. And I think my father, missed and was affected by not having an involved father. For me, he was an extremely involved father. So he only wrote two full-length books, my dad. He wrote a lot of short papers and monographs. He, he was interested in men like Saint-Exupéry or Bishop Pike or Joseph Conrad, which was his other full-length biography, who didn't have fathers or who didn't have involved fathers, present fathers and so forth. And I think that a, a colleague of my dad's said to him, Houdini, that's the guy for you. <laughs> and, and that's how he did it. I, I'm only sorry that he didn't live to see the two night television series based on his book. Yeah. I, uh, I enjoyed it immensely as a uh, kind of Houdini fan it was fascinating and fun and adrian brody is terrific as is the woman who plays bess I, I thought i knew a lot about houdini and there was a lot in there that i did not know and i i really enjoyed the opening to it which suggests that it's all fact and all fiction and it's our job to figure out which is which which well, i thought magic. was brilliant that's magic for you yeah yeah right 
which yeah. is it's odd that we're talking about magic more odd than you know because two nights ago uh, i was a guest at the magic castle oh. in los angeles and I, I hadn't been there in several years and i was privileged to witness some astonishing feats of magic and manual dexterity mm -hmm. and I'm a sucker for all that. I, so I looked at it, I said, how do they do that? And my girlfriend kept saying, how do they do that? How do they do that? And the, an and the answer always came back very well. Yeah, very well. Uh, wonders never cease, as uh, Houdini was fond of saying in your uh, television show. Did you, so your dad had really no interest in magic before embarking on, on this long book about Houdini? My father was a rather uh, cultivated guy whose interests were Catholic. He was interested in all kinds of things. He was interested in literature. He was interested in music. He was a music fool. He was a terrific pianist and a great sight reader. He put any piece of music in front of him and he'd read it right off. Um, he was married to a concert pianist. He, he loved the ballet, the opera. And whether you're talking about Shakespeare or James Bond, he gobbled all that stuff up in the same way it seems that I do. And so magic was just another, you know, part of it in the same way, I suppose, that when you look at the career of somebody like Orson Welles, they're interested in magic. You know, every boy at a certain point sort of plays with a magic kit and some people pursue it and pursue it, pursue it. And some people you know, let it go along with their first chemistry set. So yes, I think it was it was it was not his exclusive or predominant interest. No, were you were you interested in magic as a kid at all? You know, I think I've always been a great audience, and it didn't matter what I was an audience for. You could take me to the circus, you could take me to the Marx Brothers, you could take me to the opera, uh, you could take me to a magic show, and I simply gobbled all that stuff up. You could put me in front of an episode of The Lone Ranger or Sergeant Bilko. I didn't care. I'm just a great audience. But I don't think magic, I, I would be beguiled. I would be amazed as I was two nights ago. And then I kind of go on to other stuff. Uh, well, you've gone on to a lot of great stuff. I love your Sherlock Holmes books. Um, I, I certainly am a big fan of the work you did in the Star Trek series, which when we talk of Venn diagrams, uh, that would absolutely be part of my circle. Um, how'd you come to being involved with the TV miniseries about your dad's book? I have been friends and worked for many years with a television producer named Jerry Abrams. I started working with Jerry in 1973 with the first teleplay that I wrote was for a, a television movie called Judge D and the Haunted Monastery. I seem to be incapable of explaining things shortly. Everything is a big <laughs> digression and I'm very sorry for your listening. No, it's fantastic. You can always shut it off. Anyway, the point is that there was a, a China apparently invented everything first, including detective stories. And a circuit court judge in the seventh century, Judge D. Gen J, uh, solved mysteries. And people wrote detective stories about him, and now there are movies about him. But back in 1972 or something like that, and I had just come to Hollywood and was looking for work and didn't know anybody. And I met Jerry Abrams, and uh, I met a director named Jeremy Kagan. And I'm happy to say both of these gentlemen are alive and still my friends. Uh, it gave me a shot to write this Judge D in the Haunted Monastery because I think ABC thought they were going to get a, a Kung Fu movie out of it, which it wasn't. But it was a television movie with an all Asian cast. The monastery in question was the old Camelot Castle on the Warner Brothers lot. And that's where I met Jerry. And Jerry and I have been friends ever since. Jerry's son is J.J. Abrams who directs movies. Anyway, Jerry said to me a couple of years ago, let's do Houdini. And I said, oh, funny, you should say that because my dad wrote a very interesting book about Houdini. I, I would be interested if it were 
based on his book, I would only be interested. And that's how it got made. What was your process for, uh, did you know it was two nights going in? Did you know it was going to be that long? Did you, wh- how did you get started on it? What, what other resources did you use? Because I know there's stuff mentioned in the movie that I don't remember being in your dad's books. So you must have had to dig oh, a little there, bit. There's a, there's a lot of books about Houdini that I read. Many, many books. Because my dad's book is distinguished, if, if one could call it that, by being the only book of all the books about Houdini that attempts some inner explanation of his psychological process, the why, why would you do this? Why do you feel the need to do this? Other books will tell you what Houdini did and some will tell you how he did it. But my dad's book, as I say, it kind of explores the why of it. And so I read these other books to supplement the rest of the the how and the what. And I've amassed quite a large Houdini library. When I say large, probably compared to yours, not so much, but I must have like 10 books about Houdini and flying airplanes and Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle and spiritualism and and so forth. Uh, So yes, I read all those to supplement what I was Uh, trying to condense. I don't remember whether uh, at this point, whether it was proposed as two nights or three nights or or whatever. I also know that if it hadn't been for Adrian Brody agreeing to play Houdini, it it never would have happened. They weren't going to do it without a star. He's great. Nothing nothing happens without a star. I was telling Jim earlier um, before you got on that uh, my wife was kind enough to sit down and watch it with me. She's always worried in things like this. that she's going to see how something's done? She doesn't want to know how magic is done at all. And when we got to the end, she said, Houdini seems so nice. He's such a likable guy. And I said, I think that's really more Adrian Brody. Oh, Um, it is. It's definitely Adrian Brody. As I say, the movie would not have got made without Adrian. I'm not sure that he wasn't to a large degree cast against type. Mm-hmm. I, I think Houdini was a guy with ants in his pants, a, a, a kind of frenetic uh, character. And I don't think when you read about him in any detail that he was what you'd call nice. I think he was a person who had a lot of charm that he could switch on and off like a tap. And I think and this is one of the things that my dad's book brings out, and we tried to bring it out in the movie, that Houdini's, whose own father was a failure, a flop, an absent parent. He was a Hungarian rabbi who moved to Appleton, Wisconsin, but in umpteen years never managed to learn to speak English, got fired by his congregation, wound up in New York working in a necktie factory with his son, So I think Houdini spent a lot of his life looking for substitutes or alternative father figures. And I think the first one he probably stumbled on was the French magician Robert Houdin, from from whom he took his, his name. And I think Houdini's pattern, at least according to my dad's reading of it, was to find father figures and fall hard for them only to ultimately become disenchanted and alienated and furious with them, probably because ultimately they weren't his real father. But I think there was something like that going on. Yeah, it's pretty clear that that that's what happened with Doyle as well. Yes, yes. But he had better reason than in some other cases to be disenchanted with Doyle because Doyle's Atlantic City seance with Lady Doyle, uh, Houdini ultimately regarded as a real betrayal uh, because he decided, probably correctly, that the contact with his mother via Lady Doyle doing spirit writing um, was fake. And, And by the way, it's not that Mrs. Doyle or Lady Doyle might not have believed what she was doing. It just didn't track for two reasons, as your listeners may already know. Houdini experienced this, this contact with his mother, and he was as obsessed with her as he was with the fact of an absent father. And he was so overcome when she spoke to him via the spirit writing 
that it was a couple of days before he realized that his mother didn't speak a word of English and she had communicated via Lady Doyle in English. She only spoke Yiddish. Doyle got around this difficulty by explaining that the medium, in this case, Lady Doyle, uh, worked as a kind of simultaneous translator. And Houdini said, yeah, but, and this was the second item, it was his birthday and she never mentioned it. Mm. And she always sent him something on his birthday. And he then denounced Doyle and Lady Doyle as, quote, menaces to mankind. Oh, boy. End quote. Wow. Got to get you right off the Christmas card list. Exactly. In Lady Doyle's defense, I quote George Costanza, it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> Absolutely. So were you involved in a day-to-day way with production? And, and I'm wondering why, why you didn't direct it. I was involved. I was in the whole movie was shot in Budapest. Everything. Um, Wisconsin, Missouri was all. And I was involved. I was not invited to direct. I I, I have not directed really since the death of my wife in 1993. I had two small children to raise. And by the time it was like possible for me to go back, since they are now grown up and busy, I was sort of out of the game. Oh, that's too bad. You're, you're a terrific director. I'm not arguing with you. <laughs> <laughs> so as you were scripting it, and you were using other sources. Jim and I were discussing earlier about how there was sort of a whitewashing of Houdini early on, and then more and more stuff came out and other books came out and he became uh, more and more human, I guess. How concerned were you about this is fact, this is fiction? That's a very good question. And it doesn't just apply to Houdini. It it, it applies largely to the, the whole issue of dramatizing the stories taken based on real events. And by the way, you could make the case in a way that there's no such thing as fiction, that all fiction ultimately can be traced back to something real. I'll give you two examples off the top of my head. One, uh, Moby Dick was based on a real whale called Mocha Dick because of his color. And as Heinrich Schliemann uh, proved when he discovered Troy, most legends, most myths, have their origins somewhere in the mists of time in some kind of reality. It turns out there was a place called Troy. So he was not far sort of off the mark. It's a naughty question with a K, how much we owe to fact and how much we get to mush around and drama, dramatize. And the answer has to be inevitably elastic. The, the part that's the problem is that people are neither taught nor do they read history anymore. We are not taught civics. We are not taught history. Nobody knows anything. And so by default, movies and television are where we get our history. And that history is not always truthful. It is dramatized. For example, in that Academy Award winning movie, The Deer Hunter, we learn that the, that the North Vietnamese made American prisoners of war in Vietnam play Russian roulette. There's no evidence, no historical evidence that they ever did any such thing. And yet, if you're getting your history from the movies, that's what you see. And someone said that seeing is believing. I think magicians depend on this. In any case, you have to sort of always be looking over your own shoulder when you are dramatizing history and realizing that, yes, you can telescope dates and characters, but what's the point where you cross a line and start inventing things out of whole cloth? Is it justified to show the North Vietnamese forcing American boys to play Russian roulette. I'll give you another example. Was Richard III really the monster that Shakespeare portrays? Now remember, Shakespeare is writing for the granddaughter of the man who killed Richard III and usurped his throne and calls himself king. You could make a very different case that that guy was a scumbag and that Richard was not. Yeah. But, you know, Shakespeare was in business. 
The Globe Theater was a money-making operation and Henry VII's granddaughter was the Queen of England. <laughs> so there are a lot of variables here when you sit down to dramatize. I've worked for the History Channel, one was Houdini, and I can tell you the History Channel will not make a movie where Americans look bad. Really? History Channel will not make a movie that questions at any point in our own history our right to the moral high ground. Hmm. It's a point of view and they have a demographic. And Americans don't want to be shown any of their own flaws or asked to think about them. Well, who does? Can I ask questions about the espionage part of what I witnessed last night? Although I had a sort of a vague uh, memory that there is some espionage connection or perhaps connection. Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. It was very clear uh, in the first episode that he was working for at least the American government and perhaps the English government as well. Is, is there evidence for that? Circumstantial evidence, yes. And I suppose that it, it could still be, uh, even at this late date, protected in some way uh, in terms of, I don't know, them not admitting or maybe no real hard evidence exists anymore, right? I'm more inclined to think that no real hard evidence exists, although we all know that, you know, somebody said truth is the daughter of time, but a lot of evidence has, uh, for a lot of things, not merely in this country, but also England, has been redacted and eliminated and, and buried. You know, how many of your listeners know the story of Alan Turing? Alan Turing may have shortened World War II by as much as two years by inventing the computer that, you know, helped break the German Enigma code. Alan Turing signed the Official Secrets Act, which meant that his wartime work could never be revealed. Alan Turing was gay. After the war was over, Alan Turing was arrested on a morals and decency charge, and he could not tell the world who he was. And so he was sentenced to some kind of chemical castration, I believe. That's right. And he killed himself. And all of this remained a secret for the next 55 years before the world's, you know, learned. And suddenly there was a play called Breaking the Code. And then there was the Enigma novel by Robert Harris. And then there was Uh, the movie, which is very inaccurate and very troublesome to me, The Imitation Game. Because in The Imitation Game, the first thing he does when he's arrested is tell the cop who he is. And the cop believes him. Well, the crushing irony, as well as inaccuracy, is that there's no way he was allowed to tell. That was the price you pay when you sign the Official Secrets Act. So that, that movie kind of bugged me. Whereas, for example, Enigma, which I think is one of my favorite movies, uh, doesn't bug me at all because it doesn't call him Alan Turing, and therefore he's not gay, and it's a different story entirely, spun out of, inspired by, but not pretending to be Alan Turing. Well, now I'm going to have to watch that movie because I don't think I've seen it. You never saw Enigma? I don't believe I, I, I saw Enigma. Of course, the only, it's the only movie produced by Mick Jagger and Lauren Michaels, <laughs> written by Tom Stoppard, Kate Winslet, Dougray Scott, Jeremy Northam. Anyway, it's a fantastic, yeah. it's a fantastic movie. But you have to watch it like five times in order to understand everything that's going on, because Tom Stoppard is not going to make it easy. It's, uh, just a quick sideline here. I remember reading somewhere that uh, Mick Jagger was a possible first choice for uh, Time Ripper. After Time. Yeah, Jack the Ripper. Okay, interesting. I I prefer the choice you came up with, but that's... well, when they Warner Brothers, who was trying to sort of figure out how to make this movie quote commercial, <laughs> they were so surprised when it was a hit. They they suggested Mick Jagger as Jack the Ripper, and uh, he was in L.A. at the time touring, and I. 
I really didn't understand the politics of not just filmmaking, but, you know, sort of office politics generally. And my first reply was no. You know, you might believe him as the Ripper, but you'd never believe him, or I didn't think you would believe him as a Harley Street surgeon. And they said, you mean you won't even meet him? And that's when I said, oh, okay, I get it. I have to agree to meet, you know, so I met him. And then I said, fellas, I still don't, you know, think this can work. And so we went on to David Warner. I think that was the first film I uh, became aware of David Warner. And of course, it colored my opinion of David Warner for everything I've seen him in since, including him as Bob Cratchit in uh, a version of a Christmas Carol. I kept thinking to myself, don't turn your back on him. He's a killer. He's a stone cold killer because of Time After Time, which is still one of my favorite movies. Oh, thank you so much. We promise not to geek out too much, but I have no, to tell you good. that the the hotel room scene between him and Anne McDowell, I still pull up once or twice a year to look at. Uh, the writing and the acting in that scene, uh, you are literally the last person on earth I expected to see. They're both so, so good in that scene. Yeah. They are, that they are. Yeah, but we promise not to go down that geeky route because we'd be here all day. Yeah, we did promise not to go down the geeky route. We will go a little bit further down the geeky route uh, in part two. But my goodness, what a great chat. What an interesting man. Interesting, smart, connected, knowledgeable. It's, it's, in terms of my own life, he's nailing so many things that I'm super in love with. Uh, Houdini, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Star Trek. I mean, he, he, Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. He couldn't be, you know, I mean, it's right there where I, I, I'm so happy to talk to a guy like that and find out how incredibly articulate and bright he is. Should be no surprise. Yep. And, you know, was it fate that we talked from that day that he had just been to the Magic Castle? How about that? Huh? Yeah. See, how the, see how the gods favor? Uh, your your camera must be incredible, John, because it's certainly not mine. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I make the payments every month. I don't know if you're doing <laughs> that. So, Jim, you know more about Houdini than I do. I mean, you always have. Did the series seem accurate to you? He talked a lot about uh, fact and fiction. Yeah. You know, it's been a while since I have really kind of dove into the Houdini uh, river and swum around a little with the facts and fiction of that kind of thing. Um, it struck me, I asked him a question about it saying, you know, is there, I'd sort of heard that there may have been, there's a book out about espionage. Is there any kind of, and it, when he says, you know, circumstantial evidence that, that uh, there's all kinds of circumstantial evidence about Houdini and there's, it, it, so was it historically accurate in the final analysis? I really didn't care. So, you know what I mean? I yeah. enjoyed it for what it was. Was it historically accurate? As I think Nicholas Meyer quotes at some point in this interview, an Italian uh, phrase, which means if it didn't happen like that, it should have. Right. And and there's some of that for me in the in this miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that he chatted with us about it and other things. It was a delight to talk to him a little bit about time after time and to actually tell the guy who wrote it and directed it how much I love that hotel scene. If you haven't seen Time After Time, there's a point in the movie where H.G. Wells meets uh, Jack Ripper in a modern day hotel. He sort of surprises him there and it's just so well written. Who is it? Your breakfast, sir. Bless my soul. May I come in? Certainly, certainly. You were literally the last person on earth I expected to see. You've given me quite a turn. I will put a link to it in the show notes uh, years from now. If you're a years from now person, as opposed to right around now person, don't know if that link is still there. Sorry if it isn't, but at the, at the, uh, uh, at the time of this recording, there is a link to the hotel room scene with David Warner and Malcolm McDowell, my favorite scene from one of my favorite movies. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I remember seeing it for the first time in the theater and I probably saw it four more times in the theater with different friends and, and acquaintances. And I've seen it, I don't know, two, three times on uh, video. Um, it, it's really a 
just to, especially for the first the first time you see it. Yeah, I think you'll you'll really enjoy it. And for mystery lovers, he does a little twist toward the end about someone who's dead and turns out not to be dead, which is, is as clever as anything I've seen uh, or read in uh, just about any mystery. And it's very well set up. And if you go back and look at it, go, yep, he put all the pieces there and it was all there. There's links uh, to a little bit of time after time in the show notes. I've also got a couple trailers with Houdini miniseries in there and a really interesting uh, interview with Adrian Brody talking about playing Houdini. He is a uh, very intense and thoughtful actor. Well, see, now I haven't seen that. And now I'm going to have to go to the show notes and watch that because I, I, I really thought Adrian Brody was terrific and made Houdini so absolutely watchable and likable yeah. both. Yep front of an audience and not in front of an audience which my understanding is that part not historically accurate yeah uh, not the uh, nicest guy yeah he might not have been the nicest guy to hang out with but uh having said that i, I will absolutely go to the show notes and listen to the adrian brody interview talking about playing houdini so we are at episode 215 if you are doing the math from home which means we're going to listen to chapter 15 of the second book, The Bullet Catch. But John, before we do, could you sort of, I don't know, circle the wagons, bring us up to date, give us I a- can. Yeah. Ha- having read the book, uh, I can remember what happened in chapter 14. It's, uh, there was some phone message stuff back and forth with uh, Eli talking to Trish about uh, Washburn and, and all that stuff. He has coffee with her and they talk about her late husband. It's, it's building the relationship between Trish and Eli. And that brings us right into chapter 15. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 15. Is there something wrong with your cell phone? I could tell Harry was surprised to hear my voice coming from the top of the stairs. He was just opening the door to his apartment, and he looked up the staircase, squinting at me. I was sitting in the dark. Hello there, Buster. Why are you sitting in the dark? We're not talking about me right now. We're talking about you and your cell phone. Did you perhaps lose it? He patted his pockets, finally pulling the phone out of his breast pocket. It's right here. Do you need it? He held it up toward me. Is it on? Is it on what? Is it turned on, I hissed, as I stood and slowly moved down the stairs toward him. Of course not. I don't want to wear out the battery. He slipped the phone back into his pocket and opened his door, stepping deftly into his apartment and out of sight. I sped up and made it into his kitchen before the door swung shut. Do you know how worried I've been about you? I've been to the bar next door. I called Max. I called Sam. I even called Abe. Nobody knew where you were. You should have called me, he said, as he took off his windbreaker and opened the closet door. I did call you. Your phone was turned off. Oh, that's right. You want some fruit? These bananas are right on the edge. So am I, but don't change the subject, old man. You left me a message this afternoon to call you. I did? Oh, that's right, I did. I needed a ride to the drugstore. You didn't call back, so I went out to catch the bus. You've been at the drugstore for the last eight hours? Don't be silly. What could one do in a drugstore for eight hours? There was something woozy about his attitude. It took me a moment to recognize. Have you been drinking? He shook his head and then nodded holding up his right hand and demonstrating with his thumb and first finger the international sign for just a wee bit. I sat heavily in one of the three chairs that surrounded his small kitchen table and rubbed my eyes. When I opened them, I saw he was now seated across from me. He was eating a banana. Another banana rested unopened in front of me on the table. Really, Buster, you should eat one. They're right on the edge. In the name of all that is holy, what is it going to take for you to tell me where you've been for the last eight hours while I've been sitting here going out of my mind? He arched an eyebrow at me. Out of your mind? I shrugged. Well, really, really concerned. He smiled. Thank you. 
he said. He took the last bite from his banana and then got up to throw the peel into the small trash can under the sink. Well, if you must know, I spent the evening in the company of two charming women. Two women? He had my attention, and he knew it. Two charming women, he said, stretching the word charming into about sixteen syllables. I sat back in my chair. Really, do tell. I needed to go to the drugstore to refill my prescription. I tried calling you, and when you didn't answer your phone, I wonder from where you inherited that annoying trait, I decided instead to take the bus. Minneapolis has, as you know, an extensive public transportation system, he said with a twinkle in his eye that made me want to strike him. I suspect by the time the light rail finally gets built in this neighborhood, I'll be 20 years dead, but that's all well and good because the buses run on time and they run right past our shop. You're going to make me regret asking, aren't you? Can we cut to the chase? So there I was sitting on the bus bench. Wondering about this and that when a car pulled up. The passenger window was rolled down, and two attractive women asked me if I needed a ride somewhere. You got into a car with two strange women? It's not like they offered me candy, and they weren't strange women. It was your friend, the psychic, Megan, and her other psychic friend, Franny. Hardly the kidnapping type, I think. Megan offered you a ride? I tried to take the incredulous tone out of my voice, but it slipped out right at the end. What's wrong with that? She didn't break up with me. She broke up with you. We didn't break up. We're on a break. There's a difference. I waved my hands, trying to clear the confusion out of the air in front of me. But we're getting off the point. You spent the evening in the company of two psychics? Harry shook his head and leaned in conspiratorially. Technically one psychic. I think we can all agree that as a psychic, Megan is really, really terrible. But you don't even believe in psychics. I don't have to believe in them to know when one of them is frankly not very good. Of course, I didn't say this to her face. Of course you didn't. So they drove you to the drugstore. I gestured for him to get on with his story. Yes, and then they asked me if I wanted to continue on with them to dinner and since I didn't have any plans this evening, I agreed. So you went to dinner? Harry's face widened into an annoying grin. Well, we never technically got around to dinner. We did what in my day we called the pub crawl. You went out drinking. Technically, he said, using that same word again. We were wine tasting. Buster, did you know wine comes in flights? Yes, I'm aware wine comes in flights. Well, it was news to me. They are flights of fancy, let me tell you. So at each bar, we'd order an appetizer and a flight or two and sip and compare. Very civilized way to spend an evening, if you ask me. Actually, I'm sorry I asked you. So you got soused with a pair of psychics. Franny didn't drink. We called her the designated psychic. He gave the line a far bigger laugh than it deserved. So you got drunk with my girlfriend. She's not your girlfriend. You're on a break. Before I could respond, he stood unsteadily to his feet. Buster, can you open the store for me in the morning? I think I might want to sleep in. Sleep in? You mean you want to sleep it off? Sorry, I can't. I need to be on the movie set with Jake. Well, that's fine, he said amiably. The shop can stay closed. I can't imagine we'd have much foot traffic tomorrow. Good night, Buster. Before he rounded the corner to his bedroom, he turned back toward me. It took him a moment to remember why he had stopped. Oh, yes. Can you shut the light off when you go? That's a good fellow. I sat at the table for a while until I heard the steady snore that signaled he was asleep and then I went up to my own apartment and climbed into my own bed. I pulled up Double Indemnity on Netflix on my iPad and watched it for a while. It was as good as I remembered it, but I fell asleep before it was over and never did learn if Walter Neff dies in the end.
This place is spooky as hell. It was early the next morning, and Jake was whispering to me as we made our way down the craft services table, loading up on a breakfast of featherlight western omelets, fresh fruit, yogurt, and a wide selection of mouthwatering Danish. Around us, people were eating and laughing and getting ready to start their day of filmmaking. What do you mean? I whispered back. Everyone seems to be in a great mood. That's what I mean. It's weird. Look at them. He gestured across the small clearing from where the food had been set up. Walter, the director, was laughing with the two producers, Donna and Arnold. Noel was hanging on Walter's arm. They were acting like they were private guests at the best cocktail party ever. Why is everybody so happy? I whispered. Not everybody. He tilted his head to the left, and I turned to see Stuart, the writer, glaring at, well, everyone. He clutched his styrofoam cup of coffee in his hands, his eyes grim slits as he surveyed all the activity around him. He was giving the same look he'd given when both of us spotted Jake and Noel canoodling in the woods. The writer is still pissed off, I said, recapping the situation. The plot of the movie has imploded. The producers have lost half their funding, yet they're yucking it up. I turned to Jake. You're right. This is weird. Why are they so happy? Not sure. But my best guess is because they still have plan B. Kill the leading man. We grabbed some utensils and found two open seats at one of several picnic tables that had been set up for crew meals. So Noel is back together with Walter? I asked as we settled into our seats. I didn't know they were apart, Jake said, using far more acting ability than I would have given him credit for. Oh, come on, I said quietly. I saw the two of you. In the woods. You know. He gave me a perplexing look that seemed genuine. What? The two of you in the woods. Canoodling. A look of recognition passed across his face. Oh, that he said, cutting into his omelet. I was just acting. From where I was standing, that was an Oscar-worthy performance, I said, sounding far more like a 14-year-old boy than I intended. We were rehearsing, Jake said. We had a love scene coming up, and that's what actors do. Wow, and they pay you and everything. Don't be a dork. Love scenes are hard to make look real, and it helps if the two actors have already established some chemistry. Chemistry, right, I said, nearly snorting into my orange juice. Pull the other one. It was actually sort of weird, he admitted quietly. Noel and I have a bit of history. A couple of years back, I dated a roommate out in L.A., and it ended badly. How badly? Jake shrugged. My timing was bad. She was an actress, too. She'd had a run of bad luck with auditions. Her career, such as it was, had tanked, and then I broke up with her. That was sort of the last straw. She quit the business and went back home to Ohio. Noel was super pissed at me. He gestured toward Noel, who was laughing a little too loud and a little too long at something Walter had said. You may find it hard to believe, but that girl has a temper on her. I mean, a Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction temper. Before I could tell him that it was in fact hard to believe, he moved on to a new topic. So the police were out here yesterday to talk to me, he said. Something about someone from the reunion that died, a suicide or something. Howard Washburn. I had no memory of the guy. Did you? I shook my head. Me neither, I said. Although from what I've heard, they don't really think it was a suicide. Actually, they seem to think Trish might be involved in some way. Shouldn't have an alibi, I added. Interesting, Jake said. Very interesting. First they think she offed her husband, and now one of his compatriots. She's a very busy girl. She didn't do it, I said too emphatically. Jake shot me a look. She volunteers at a homeless shelter, for God's sake. She was homecoming queen. People like that don't commit murder. On the contrary, he said. That's exactly who I would suspect if this were a movie. But it's not a movie. Neither is this, but we're still at it, Jake said, gesturing to the army of crew members who were wrapping up breakfast and preparing for their day of shooting. 
Our central mystery has been blown out of the water. Our main character is just a hack who screwed up, and now everyone and his brother knows the method behind the bullet catch. Well, they know one method, I said, biting into a strawberry that was way too big and juicy for this time of year. I considered the volume of pesticides I was consuming and then decided to throw caution to the wind and have another one. A hand shot in and grabbed my wrist as I reached for the second strawberry. What do you mean, one method? I looked up to see Walter, the movie's director. He was holding my wrist tightly as I tried to pick up the strawberry. He wore his signature baseball cap and sunglasses. I couldn't see his eyes, but I could sure feel his grip around my wrist. There's more than one way to do the bullet catch? Sure. I mean, it's like just about any magic trick. There are a lot of different methods to do on the bullet catch, I said, taking the strawberry from the plate with my free hand. Walter hung on to my wrist. There's another way to do it that hasn't been revealed? I nodded while biting into the strawberry. I chewed it quickly, sensing he was looking for a prompt answer. The audience may now know one way to do it because of that article, but you could simply use a different method and still fool them. So we could still fool them, he repeated quietly, finally releasing my wrist. With another method. He stared up into the trees overhead. The audience will think we're using the method they know, and that's what they'll be looking for. But we won't. We'll use a different method. He turned and sat between us, the wooden bench creaking under his weight. He scratched at his chin thoughtfully. Magicians often did that after Terry revealed the method behind an illusion, I said, not entirely certain he was hearing me. They just switched the method, which was double confusing for the audience because it played on their preconceptions on how the trick was done. In many cases, it made for a more effective illusion. We'll do it all in one shot, Walter said taking off his sunglasses and turning to Jake. Seamless. From the moment Terry starts the act right through to when he gets shot. All one continuous take. Walter then turned to me. His eyes were watery and bloodshot. And you, Mr. Magic, he said, putting a chubby arm around my shoulder. You will not only be our consultant on it, but I'm putting you in the movie. You, my friend are the one who is going to shoot Terry Alexander. All right, so the bullet catch. Coming up with a new method for the bullet catch. I will say that in most of the Eli Marks books, when Eli does a trick or someone does a trick, I, as the writer, have a general idea of how it's done. I may not know the specifics of it, but I have a general idea if someone's doing the Miser's Dream or they're doing the Linking Rings or the Floating Light Bulb, which Floating Light Bulb is a very hard trick to do, or doing the Magic Square. I know that. I know how it's done. The bullet catch, not so much. I don't know how the how it was done in the book. I don't know the new one that Eli comes up with. I've seen, and you've seen, Penn and Teller do it, right? Have you ever seen anyone else do it live? Never seen anybody else do it live and never would really want to. Uh, the, the sort of uh, artistry with which Penn and Teller have elevated that trick, that I don't know that anybody should attempt it ever because it, there there have been plenty of people who died doing it, yeah. who, who not only you know weren't doing it for the first time and it went wrong, but had done it as part of their act for years and years and years and um, uh, went wrong, killed him. And, and that was a part of the miniseries that I was surprised when Houdini uh, caught a bullet in that miniseries because I don't, I, in my memory of all the Houdini books I've ever read, I've never come across him uh, catching a bullet. Yeah, I thought he actually spoke out against it at one point. I remember reading that. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I certainly don't think, so there again, it, it, the miniseries was fun in and of itself, and we, we uh, don't, don't have to delve too deep about historical accuracy, I guess. But yeah, so that wraps up this episode. And uh, what a great interview from Nicholas Meyer. Such a great interview that we are going to uh, listen to him again in the next episode of the podcast. It'll, our conversation will turn to Sherlock Holmes and to Star Trek. 
I'm sorry about that. I take full responsibility. Uh, it, it, it's my fault that we talked about Star Trek. You told me not to, but he opened the door, John. He opened the door and in I you went. I could not go through it. And listen, if you own a DVD of the movie. Uh, or any movie. Yeah, you are going to find all about Nick's singular contribution to our society. And if, if you think, oh, I, I probably don't know. You do know. You've seen yeah. it. And it's all because of Nicholas Meyer. And that will all be answered in the next episode. So don't forget to check out the show notes for links, uh, including uh, a link to uh, the other podcast, the Occasional Film Podcast, which is out occasionally. Uh, We have some fun stuff coming up with that, which sometimes includes my occasional co-host, Jim Cunningham, and other occasional co-hosts. Anyway, look for that for a link to Nick Meyer's website where you can buy his uh, latest book, The Return of the Pharaoh, and check out other things that Nicholas Meyer is up to. Hey, if you are a Sherlock Holmes fan, you should read all of Nicholas Meyer's books on Sherlock Holmes. They're terrific, Uh, starting with The 7% Solution, which he wrote, as he said, when he was 25 or 26 years old. We'll get more into that next time. Do us a favor, will you, if you can, and rate this podcast. Review it if you got a second. That helps other people find it. And of course, if you're just tuning in, you ought to subscribe to this podcast and, and the occasional film podcast too. That one too. Yeah. If you no pressure though, that's, I'm not, I'm not here to sell you anything. It don't cost nothing as yeah. uh, uh, Bluto says in uh, Animal House. Grab a brew. It don't cost nothing. I think that's as good a place to end as any. Thanks everybody. We'll see you on our next episode with part two of Nicholas Meyer. You don't want to miss it. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.